meandering, flexuous, or circuitous might be applicable adjectives to describe my faith journey. And what are the opposites of those words? Uh, meandering, uh, flexuous, uh, circuitous, straight, straight, yeah. I can't do that. Um, so no wonder <laughs> even my faith journey had to be a little, a little uh, circuitous. I was uh, baptized in the uh, Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church as a child in Brazil. But my first religious experiences were in the Presbyterian Church. My grandmother's family, and eventually my grandmother went back into um, her roots, her Presbyterian roots. So my first religious experiences as a child uh, were in the um, Presbyterian Church in Brazil. But as a, as a young teen, I happened to go to a vacation Bible school, a summer, you know, summer camp essentially in this church that was near my house. I could walk there and I fell in love with the group and it happened to be a Baptist church. So of course I needed to be rebaptized. So I got baptized, dunked for a second time. But um, those, those traditions were, were very informative. But in my late teens, my family converted to evangelicalism, Pentecostalist evangelicalism, still in Brazil. And that's where I felt my first call into ordained ministry. I felt that my, my future was being a pastor, being in a place like this, <laughs> behind a pulpit or you know, moving around a congregation. So I converted, I tried to answer the call, but that's the first time I felt deeply disappointed. Well, yeah, formally and deeply disappointed with organized religion. I got to see uh, behind the curtain. I got to hear and taste and be involved in some of the, the uh, difficult politics. And Michael mentioned uh, some, some of those instances where congregations end up not really practicing what they, what they preach, um, which is a human um, uh, also um, <laughs> way of being, I would say. But I, I, I did. I tried I try to answer. I had this fallout with the, with the denomination, and I was away. I was away from uh, organized religion for over seven years until I moved to California, and um, I felt that my spirit was dried up. I felt a, a need for community. My grandmother passed away and I needed to mourn. And communities of faith are places uh, that are possible for one to mourn uh, collectively and feel some comfort. And I found myself at Glide Memorial Church in San Francisco, uh, some of you my no, I see some hands up there, Glide Memorial Church, and, um, and I ended up having a religious recovery experience there uh, in a process that wasn't easy, uh, and it took, it took quite some time. But within those years, uh, slowly moving from being at the front door of the sanctuary, not feeling quite safe to go in, 
to eventually finding myself in a Bible study group and leading some of the groups. And um, also hearing some permission to explore other faith traditions. So during that time, I started studying uh, Soto Zen, Buddhism, um, exploring a little bit of Sufism through poetry, particularly Rumi, uh, who is a Unitarian Universalist saint. Uh, every congregation <laughs> tends to have some Rumi uh, poetry here and there. Um, but also studying a bit of uh, Kabbalah and, and yoga, not just as a physical exercise, but the spirituality of it and the spiritual tradition within Hinduism. And um, I found that the Zen Buddhist school, the Sufi Muslim school, the Jewish Kabbalah school and tradition, and the kind of yoga practice I was developing had a lot in common with Christian mysticism. So those traditions helped me to do a full circle <laughs> back into my root tradition and find a particular way of Christianity and particular practice of Christianity that really resonated with me. And I found that it had a lot in common with all these other traditions I had been exploring. So one could say that, that Christian mysticism has a lot in common with these uh, religious traditions, but one could also argue that they are the mystical branches of those religious trees. And um, yeah, and Christianity has a lot to do with them as well as they might have something to do with Christianity. And one of uh, my Zen uh, teachers, um, I had the, the privilege to work with and to learn from and practice, which is really important, and maybe the focus of this, this homily this morning. He offered me an even more resonant imagery as I uh, entered into a vocational discernment process because at my time at Glide, I felt the second call into ordained ministry, which I resisted greatly, primarily because I had another vocation. <laughs> I had been academically trained, and uh, as a single parent, I couldn't really see myself as trying something else. But lo and behold, this teacher blessed me with um, this way of thinking about my faith journey, and he invited me to think about faith and spirituality as water faith and spirituality as water, and religious traditions as wells. Theoretically, every well has water, <laughs> even though wells may change. Location, composition, shape, size, form. So he knew that I had been drinking from uh, wells of various religious traditions, so he encouraged me to draw water from even greater depths of these wells. He reminded me that water is water, H2O, water is water, and even as it conforms to the shape of the container we drink from, even as it may uh, retain distinct flavors from the ground where this well may reside, wells may differ in form, shape, and size, but they draw from the same aquifer, same aquifer. So my faith journey could be described, once again, as meandering, <laughs> flexuously going from one well to another, or circuitously going from one well to another, or it could be defined as pluralistic. You heard that word 
just a couple minutes ago? Yeah? Pluralistic. And pluralism is defined as one of the principles in the final proposal of Article 2 of the Unitarian Universalist Association. And maybe some of you have been involved with these conversations that's been taking actually a couple of years. And uh, this next year, we're going to be voting on this proposed new language. And this is how pluralism is defined. We celebrate that we are all sacred beings, diverse in culture, experience, and theology. We covenant to learn from one another in our free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We embrace our differences and commonalities with love, curiosity, and respect. Love, curiosity, and respect. So this is the theory, and we know that theories on their own are not very useful unless they're tested, tried, unless there's some practice. So um, I fought that second call into ordained ministry for almost five years. If I were to be accountable, <laughs> held accountable, about five years. However, I end up having about, about two weeks, or maybe less than two weeks, to meet the application deadlines for the divinity schools that year that I, decided, I figured I had no other way. I, my path was going that way, and I needed to go that way. And there were three schools I was uh, very serious about and interested in and, and had explored a little bit. And there were two I wasn't, um, I wasn't so sure, but for good measure, right? Uh, <laughs> imposter syndrome, you never think you're going to be accepted, so you try more. <laughs> apply to everyone. Uh, but I applied for five, and, um, and one of them was Harvard, Harvard Divinity School. And primarily because I had an epiphanic experience uh, on that campus, believe it or not, I was on that campus unrelated to religion, unrelated to theology. I was there for some architecture um, engagement, uh, and that was my previous career. But lo and behold, I had this epiphanic uh, experience there that moved me uh, greatly. And I also uh, came to know the work of Professor Diana L. Eck. Some of you might have heard Professor Eck. She uh, founded the Pluralism Project, the Pluralism Project. So that was back, you know, 2007, I think, 2008, that I came across her work. And the Pluralism Project studies and interprets the changing religious landscape of the United States. The changing religious landscape of the United States. And this is how they find pluralism. Pluralism is an ethic for living together in a diverse society. Not mere tolerance or relativism, or, but a real encounter of commitments. Not relativism, not tolerance, and Michael touched that on that a little bit. It's a real encounter of commitments. And on their seminal essay titled Rivers of Faith, Catching water, rivers of faith. Rivers of faith. Uh, here's here's a, a brief excerpt from it. Religions are far more like rivers than like 
boundary circles, or even complex structures. Nourished by mountain springs, they gather tributaries, flow in full flood through the plains, divide into multiple branches, merge in confluence with other streams, and spread into vast deltas. Some eventually spend themselves and dry up, leaving behind the traces of an ancient riverbed. Others become so extensive and complex, they constitute an entire river system. It is important to remember, then, that living religious traditions are in motion, as each new generation makes that tradition its own, in its own time and in its own ways. Religions are not simply sets of ideas or practice passed in a box from generation to generation, but living traditions of faith that must be appropriated and new. Living traditions of faith that must be appropriated and new. End quote. So now, what if we look at the meaning of the word appropriation? The Cambridge Dictionary defines appropriation as the act of taking something for your own use, usually without permission. Example here. <laughs> the author objected to the appropriation of his story by an amateur filmmaker. And here's another example I found in another dictionary that I, I, I'm using in a tragic way. The appropriation of parish funds. That's another example. <laughs> in the secondary definition of appropriation, the act of taking something such as an idea, custom, or style from a group or culture that you are not a member of and using it yourself. And here's an example. The emergence of a global culture of hip-hop raises issues of racial and cultural appropriation. I see a couple nods. Thank you. Right there with me, right? The emergence of a global culture of hip-hop raises issues of racial and cultural appropriation. And I think you can take hip-hop out of that example, and you might think of many other examples of um, racial and cultural appropriation. So I ask, have you ever witnessed any practices of appropriation in your immediate circles or society at large? Well, um, as it turns out, Harvard was uh, the only school that said no to me. Can you believe that? <laughs> they did, uh, but you know, their, their folks are not as smart as, as, as the folks at Yale, so they knew better. Uh, and I'm not bitter. Uh, <laughs> but I'm a firm believer that words hold incredible power. So looking at the word appropriation, and the usage of the word appropriation is very dangerous one. The word appropriation is so dangerous because it's often preceded by the word miss, the prefix miss. Miss 
appropriation. Misappropriation. So let us continue to reflect. Were there any occasions that you have witnessed practices of appropriation or misappropriation? Because that's antithetical to pluralism. So I trust that Professor Eck is not promoting, I go back to Cambridge Dictionary, taking something such as an idea, custom, or style from a group or culture that we are not a member of and using it ourselves. I really believe that's not what she meant. And to prove that, there's, there's a little case in point here from the work of the Pluralism Project. A Vietnamese Buddhist monk told a Pluralism Project researcher in Phoenix, we must take the plant of Buddhism out of the pot and plant it now in the soil of Arizona. You catching the nuance there? So it is a Buddhist monk talking about taking Buddhism and planting it in Arizona. That's appropriate, isn't it? This person's tradition, this person's dedicated time, effort, and culture, and acknowledging a different context and planting it in a different context to allow for some influence to transform it as well. So I ask again, have you ever witnessed any practices of misappropriation in our own circles? Here are some very helpful antidotes to misappropriation offered by the good folks of the Pluralism Project. And it's a little extensive here, but I quote, pluralism is not diversity alone. And believe it or not, uh, I met uh, someone who's been coming to this congregation uh, maybe the fifth time, but the person couldn't stay for the service, but we had a conversation about pluralism. And this person's question was, is there a distinction between diversity and pluralism? So we got to talk a little bit about it. But here's what the folks from Pluralism Project had to say. It's not diversity alone. But the energetic engagement with diversity Mere diversity without real encounter and relationship will yield increasing tensions in our societies. The crayon box thing, or one of a kind, just that without relationships, without deeper work, is going to cause more problems than solutions. Number two, pluralism is not just tolerance either, but the active seeking of understanding across lines of difference. Tolerance is not enough, and it's not pluralism. It is not relativism either, but the encounter of commitments. The new paradigm of pluralism does not require us to leave our identities and our commitments behind. For pluralism is the encounter of commitments. It means holding our deepest differences, even our religious differences, not in isolation, but in relationship to one another. Number four, pluralism is based on dialogue. If there's no dialogue, you may get a little bit of diversity, you get one of each. If there's no dialogue, you may, <laughs> you may get a bit of tolerance, right? You shut up over there and I shut up over here. 
<laughs> pluralism is based on dialogue. The language of pluralism is that of dialogue and encounter, give and take. Criticism, right? We got to make room for it. And self-criticism. Dialogue means both speaking and listening. And that process reveals both common understandings and real differences. Dialogue does not mean everyone at the table will agree with one another. Pluralism involves the commitment to being at the table with one's commitments. So not pushing anybody away from the table, even though sometimes it feels like one wants to flip some tables. And sometimes you might need to do that. Flip the table so there's no barrier between you and the other. <laughs> as long as you're sitting in a circle and having this dialogue and this exchange. So Professor Diana Eck succinctly defines pluralism as encountering diversity. Not just checking some boxes, but encountering it fully. And I quote, pluralism isn't just the fact of diversity, but how we respond to it. It is in the response, not in the acquiring of diversity. And I really love that Michael's mind went towards uh, populism because it's indeed antithetical to pluralism. And even the word itself, populism, yeah, the populace, the people, I'm the people. But even that terminology is deceitful because it's not really about the people, is it? Because people are diverse, <laughs> either we want it or not. But it's this idea that just one kind of people is to be recognized. Only some are people because those other folk over there are less than human. Therefore, available for oppression. Not human, therefore, imposing suffering, dehumanizing is fair game. They are not even human. You hear me, yeah? You know where I'm going with this. So pluralism, as I understand it, and the intention of our Unitarian Universalist um, movement is to offer a balance, not a balance, but a, an antidote <laughs> to oppression and only some being recognized as human, as good, as faithful, as human. And the, and the tyranny, right? The brutality of appropriating and taking elements from other people's cultures and traditions, using it while dehumanizing them. So I ask again, what are we doing to remove our ignorance of one another and dismantle the stereotypes, the half-truths, and the fears and traumas that underlie old patterns 
of division and violence. Where do you draw the living waters you need for your faith journey? What are the wells that you're drawing from and protecting and recognizing where, where, where they land, where they are? How did you come about those traditions, those wells? And how deep are they? How deep are those wells that you're drawing your water from? So in case this whole imagery of wells and aquifers don't really resonate with you, I will wrap up with uh, a visualization exercise. You up to it? If you're not, focus on the, on the chalice, on the light of the chalice. But if you are, feel your body. Move it a little bit. Recognize this body here, this well that retains so much water, right? That has, it's mostly water, right? So recognize this well that is your body. Or imagine yourself as a being or a creature with roots, with roots reaching down to waterbeds, to aquifers. Roots reaching into this ground that you are planted on, recognizing the quality of this ground, reaching deep with your roots, or even imagining your roots as your ancestral ethnic and religious traditions. Imagine those roots that you are drawing your nourishing from, your nourishment from. What are your root traditions? And the ones between your roots that is still in form and nourish you. Are there some other root systems around you that you maintain some connection, some relationship, some exchange of nutrients, for we know trees do that. So imagine your roots, the space between your roots, the nourishment that you draw from the ground you planted on, in the rivers, the aquifer, the waterbeds that might be beneath you. And I'm going to repeat a brief chant from Beautiful Chorus entitled, I'm Connected. My roots reach deeply. I am connected to the core of me. My roots reach deeply. I am connected to the core of me. My roots reach deeply. I am connected to the core of me. My roots reach deeply. I am connected to the core of me. And if you like to repeat with me, 
my roots reach deeply. I am connected to the core of me. Connected to the core of me. Blessed be. Blessed be.